Hello and welcome to the Archimedes Podcast, the evidence-based section of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood, where we tell you all about the clinical questions that other people have asked and that have come back and given you the right answers for. Some people are amazing. They see something weird, they think, I don't know what the evidence for that is. And then they go away and they ask a clinical question. They search the evidence in detail. They drag out whatever has been published on that sphere and sometimes even beyond that, getting in touch with authors and all sorts of things to give us the best quality answers that we can get to the sorts of questions that attack us maybe every day, maybe every week, maybe just once a year. And that is what Archimedes is doing, bringing you this brilliance you too could be an Archimedes author. We've got a podcast explaining the process and we've also got the instructions for authors on the website. We're relatively friendly, although we're not entirely friendly, it has to be said. Um, some days, you know, there's not enough coffee in the world can, can make us cheerful all the time. Anyway, Archimedes podcast this month has got what do we use first in septic shock in paediatrics which one of the many pressers is the right thing to do and also should we be recommending those baby sleeping bag things to prevent SIDS for newborn babies but before all that we're going to kick off with a thought about the process of evidence-based medicine and the use of medicine in our everyday clinical lives. Nearly all of us will have been subject to somebody ringing about a patient that has started to puse, has got a, a high score that might be suggestive of a serious illness. And this makes me think about the time that I was listening to the fable of the shepherd boy on the hillside. A little bit bored, on his own, with just sheep for company, and no, even though I live in Yorkshire, I don't consider sheep company. And, and, and he decides to cry, WOLF! Because when you yell wolf, everybody comes to see you and, and, and to work out what's going on and to try to scare the wolf away. Except it's not actually a wolf and he's just making it up. A few days later, he's very, very bored again and yells, WOLF! And again, everybody comes out and then shouts at him for yelling wolf for no reason and they go away again. Two days later, he's out on the hillside and he actually sees a wolf. What does he yell? Yeah, wolf! And no one comes because they don't believe him. And the sheep either gobble up all of the shepherd, or all of the sheep, or all of the sheep and all of the shepherd, depending on which version you've gotten, particularly how bloodthirsty your grandparents are. Now that sort of situation is one that we are faced on a daily basis. I mean, he's got a hit rate of 33%, but when you look at the paediatric early warning scores, the hit rate is nowhere near that high. I mean, what would be reasonable? 33%? 20 20%? 10%? 5%? If we extend it a bit further and we look at the two-week cancer weight with people being sent in with lymphadenopathy query lymphoma, the hit rate is well under 2%. The actual people who wrote the guidelines said in adults they were aiming for a 3% hit rate and in children they considered less than that to still be reasonable. Now that's that means that 98 out of the 100 families that get sent in have a suspicion of cancer raised, and it's not. Now, is that reasonable? Is it not? What about a Pew's score that's correct 5% of the time and 95% of the time it isn't? Yes, for the 5% it's a good thing, but what have you diverted away from in the 95% of the time? Where should we put that cut off? 
where should we say it's just too much and you shouldn't be crying wolf anymore? The first of our critical appraisals this month comes from Alessandra Glover-Williams and Fiona Findlay from Bath in the UK. They're asking a question about baby sleeping bags. Not ones you take camping with you, but the ones that you have in a cot at night to take the place of blankets or duvets or that sort of thing. When you're on the assessment unit, a baby comes in with bronchiolitis who doesn't need admission, but the mum asks, will sleeping bags be a good way of protecting the children from sudden infant death syndrome? Now, you're a bit unsure about this. No, it's recommended on some of the websites, but decide to look up the evidence. You go away and look in Cochrane and you find two individual studies. Now, not a lot of people know this, but Cochrane isn't just about systematic reviews. Within the Cochrane Library, there's also the central database of controlled clinical trials and other sorts of things like that. And within that, you can often find stuff that's quite useful, that's maybe easier to find than on the other databases. This bunch also went away and looked in PubMed and then did a little bit of reference searching as well and came up with four studies that were quite relevant um, to their question. The actual use of these sort of baby sleeping bags is pretty common. Surveys putting it at between half and three quarters of new babies being put inside them. And the idea is that they replace the need for having a duvet or swaddling or blankets or something else as well. A sudden infant death syndrome is fortunately extremely rare now. The sort of UK estimate is 0.3 per thousand live births. It's still a terrible thing to happen to a family and reducing the chances is something that we're obviously very keen to do um, as paediatricians and just as general members of humanity, really. The things that we have seen that have been associated with it are clearly sleeping position. You should put your baby down to sleep on the back. And also co-sleeping, particularly in parents' where there is drug use, alcohol use or smoking to some extent. The use of smoking around and about the place, environmental tobacco smoke, is associated with an increased risk of SIDS as well. And what's been noticed is that babies with duvets or with free um, sort of blankets and free pillows seem to have an increased risk. And and part of the theory is that there's an overheating that's involved in the pathogenesis of SIDS. It's not entirely clear, but that's one of the ideas. These papers are too related to the effect of sleeping bags on temperature control and two on whether they are a risk factor for sudden infant death syndrome. The two infant death syndrome papers are case control studies, as the most of this sort of work is, with around about 80 case babies in each. They both show that in a univariable sense the use of sleeping bags is associated with a safer, a reduced risk of cot death. But when accounted for with other elements within one of the papers this becomes not so statistically significant at the multivariable level. The two temperature papers show that the use of the sleeping bag approach doesn't change the temperature in any way, it's not associated with overheating when compared to either a traditional blankets approach or a traditional Mongolian approach of special baby swaddling which is a a comparison I didn't think that you would be expecting to hear on this podcast. The warning then 
is you've got to make sure that the sleeping bag is right for the environment. Just because they're in a sleeping bag, if it's too thick, if it's too hot, it's still a risk. And so a sleeping bag appears to be as safe, maybe safer, than blankets, but only if they are the appropriate things with tags out of the way, with a, a an appropriate level of heat control for the environment that the baby's in. And whilst they're not a strong protective factor, they're certainly not a risk factor. The other question this month is complicated for different reasons. It's from Stephen McVeigh and Alistair Turner of the Paediatric Intensive Care Unit in Glasgow. And it asks the question, which inotrope should we be using first in septic shock in paediatric patients? The scenario is one that I think we've all sort of experienced before, and that's a kid who's come in, frankly septic, with a severe infection. You've given them 40 per kilo of fluid, and they're still not quite right, crispy around the edges and looking like they need a presser to to hold them together before the intensive care unit arrives and saves the day. But the question's been raised, which one should you pick? Knowing that there's a big debate in adult intensive care, and depending on which paediatric intensive care you're in, uh, then a big debate there as well. They went away and they searched the evidence quite thoroughly, coming back with 80 potential papers that might have helped them, getting down to 17 that looked like they really would and were read in full text, but ended up really with only two trials to give this answer. In adults, there's a theory that because they're mainly in warm shock with sort of open peripheries and so on, then using norepinephrine in order to sort of tighten up the peripheral circulation to improve the blood being pumped around all the important bits in the middle is a good idea. And there is some data to suggest that use of norepinephrine in adults is associated with less death and quicker recovery and generally good things. But in children, shock is often quite different and it's usually a cold shock that's why we're thinking about capillary refill and how cool is the child are they up to the knees up to the thighs and so on and that the use in cool shock where you've already got tight peripheries that idea might be wrong and that actually what you want is a different sort of presser something like epinephrine or adrenaline or dopamine because what you primarily want to do is get the heart beating faster rather than tighten up the circulations and more powerfully to get that blood into all the right places. The complete evidence that they managed to find amounts to trials in under 200 patients. Now, that's shocking to me. We have the situation of serious sepsis happening. It must happen on a daily, if not more than daily basis around this country. And yet we're only managing to pull together the world's trials with 200 patients in it. We really need better research in this area. And one of these trials showed that the use of epinephrine compared to dopamine was associated with an improved survival. The other trial showed no difference between the two. Now, unusually for an Archimedes, but very sensibly, they did think, what if you were to pool these trials together? What if you were to pull the information together in a meta-analysis? Now, this isn't a formal systematic review, an extensive meta-analysis, but it fits with what you'd expect, really. When you put these trials together, you end up with no clear improvement with epinephrine, no clear disadvantage from dopamine and some of the secondary outcomes such as increased infection length of stay in hospital are all so uncertain fixed with reporting biases and maybe other issues that I really don't think you can read too much into it 
at, at the end of the day, what we're left with is very little data to point us one way or the other, but the data is not strongly suggesting one is hugely better than another in paediatric practice. So I think it should come down to whatever's in your guideline, whatever your people are used to using, and whatever you think is right at that point in time. There is no really solid evidence-based answer, but we actually do need to do a decent trial in this setting. If we can get the answer, we could make a reasonable improvement on the outcomes in this setting. So that's the Archimedes for this month. I look forward to hearing your clinical questions, your uncertainties and your attempts to wrangle your way through what researchers have done to make it relevant to children's practice. Please do look up the instructions to authors on the website, check out our previous podcasts and until next month, we look forward to hearing from you then. <laughs>